get your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 9. The book of Acts chapter 9. The um, scripture reading that we're going to uh, do while we study the book of Romans, uh, um, I'm going to always try to make sure the scripture reading has a direct connection to whatever we're studying on uh, on that day. So... um, as we begin the book of Romans, of course, we're going to be introduced to Paul. And so uh, we want to read something about the apostle uh, Paul this morning. So Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 30. You follow along as I read. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who, were, who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, 
And laying his hand on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Messiah in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Messiah. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall and let him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. But they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 30. Uh, now turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And as we begin our study of this letter to the Romans, uh, we will be looking at this first paragraph. Verses 1 through 7. Verses 1 through 7. Now, we're not going to get through this first paragraph today, but we're going to begin looking at this first paragraph today. Now, as we, as we look at this book, as with all the books I start to teach on, I have no idea how long this is going to take. Okay, that's just the way it is. Uh, I do not have a nice, tidy 24-sermon series on the book of Romans. It is what it is, and uh, there are some things that will need more of our attention than other things. And uh, so we're going to take longer on things like that, and I'm sure there'll be some side discussions here and there along the way, but we're not going to get too far away from this book. Now, the letter 
of Paul to the Romans has sometimes been called his magnum opus. This is his main work writing that he is known for. And uh, there may be some truth to that. I mean, this is Paul's longest letter. Almost 10,000 words. Okay, Almost 10,000, about 500 short of 10,000 words in English. In English. And so if you had a regular sheet of notebook paper, five pages front and back, that's what you have. 10,000 10, words. So it's, so it's not really that big. It's not really that big. I mean, if you've read any modern novel, you've read more words than the Book of Romans. But it is Paul's longest letter. By the way, that's the reason it's at the front of the letters that he wrote. It's the first one in your Bible. It's because it's the longest. That's the only thing that puts it there. It's not because it's extra special. Nothing like that. It's the longest. It, and this letter to the Romans might be the most sweeping in that it covers a broad uh, a number of topics. But I would not say that it is Paul's most important letter. And I wouldn't say that because each letter that Paul writes is to a specific group of people in a specific situation. So each letter that he writes is meant to uh, go towards a specific occasion, and Romans is no different than that. Uh, Older commentators used to call, this is like Paul's theological work, but it's not. It's a letter to the believers at the church in Rome on a specific occasion. So he's writing to them because he has something very specific he wants to tell them. And to help us understand this a little bit more, we're going to ask the five journalistic questions. Okay, you you know what the five journalistic questions are. Who, what, why, where, when. You know, your W's. Okay, and that's, we're going to ask those questions. And so you should have some of this in your notes, I think, there in your sermon uh, notes. So the first question is who? who? Who is this letter written by and who's it written to? Of course, in verse 1, we find that it's written by Paul. And in verse 7, we see that it's written to the believers in the city of Rome. So that tells us who wrote it and who it was written to. The second question is what? What? What is this letter about? What's it about? There's a tremendous amount of debate as to how to answer this question, what the letter of Romans about. And uh, instead of trying to get into different opinions, Right now, we're just going to go with the general accepted idea that the book of Romans, the letter of Romans, is about justification by faith and not by works. Justification by faith and not by works. And I know that word, justification, is a fancy-sounding word. It's a 
theological word. We don't use it much anymore, um, not with any real meaning to it. I think there was a, a TV show sometime called Justified. I have no idea what it was about. <laughs> I don't think it has anything to do with Christianity or what's in the Bible or anything theological, but that's the only example I know of this term justification kind of being used in modern world. But this, this letter is going to be about justification. And just to emphasize how important that is, the word justification in all of its different forms appears some 337 times in the New Testament. 79 of those are found in Paul's writings. 79. That's just a little bit under 25%. So a huge amount of Paul, uh, Paul has written about justification. It's a main topic that he covers. And um, I think also there in your handout this morning, I give you an outline of the book. Right? I think I give that to you. I give you an outline. So nine points to just a one-level outline of the book, Roman numeral one down through Roman numeral nine. And you'll notice I tried to reflect this issue, this theme of justification in that outline. So do you see that? I mean, we have the introduction, but then it's justification needed, justification applied. And so we're going to use that as a kind of a working outline. So I'm not promising that we'll stick to this specifically, we might find that we have to change it as we move on and we, our understanding of the book of Romans increases and we'll certainly have to fill in a lot of subpoints. But that's the kind of the outline that we're going to follow. So who wrote the letter? Paul. Who was it written to? The believers at Rome. What's the letter about? Justification is by faith and not by works. Our third question is why. The third question is why. Why was this letter written? What is the occasion that causes Paul to write this letter to the Romans? Now, Paul may have just written letters. He might have just been a letter writer and he would just... Well, I'm thinking about this person today, so I'm just going to write him a letter. He may have done that, but in the New Testament, his writings all have an occasion. There's a reason that Paul writes each of his letters. And so why did Paul write the letter to the Romans? Well, there seems to be some confusion in the Roman church about justification, hence it's a main topic here. And there seems to be some conflict between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. They're wondering how they fit together. How do Jews and Gentiles who are believers, how do they fit together and complement each other and don't come in conflict with one another? So that's really why Paul is writing. Uh, fourthly, where is he writing from? Where's he writing from? So we're in the book of Romans. Now just turn back a few pages to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. 
and uh, look down at verses 2 and 3. Acts chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. Verse 2, now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him, as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So, here we see in verses 2 and 3, at the end of verse 2, at the beginning of verse 3, that Paul is in Greece, and he is in Greece for three months. Now, I think, and this goes along with probably most uh, scholars on the book of Romans, that when he's in Greece, he's actually in Corinth. He's in Corinth at this time. Okay, we know that he had visited Corinth before, and he is probably at Corinth here. Something that helps us understand this is at the end of verse 3, he goes back through Macedonia. Okay, Macedonia is going to be in the northern part of Greece. So wherever Paul was at in Greece, it was south of that. Corinth is a major city. It's a city that he already had been to. There's a city where the church was. He would have been comfortable there. He had been able to spend some time there. It seems like he wrote this letter from, Greece, or from Corinth on his third mission journey. So that's where, now when? When did he write this letter? It seems most likely that he wrote it in A.D. 57. A.D. 57. Again, this is when he spent three months in Corinth. Now, going back to Romans chapter 1, with this background information in mind, this background information of who, what, why, where, when, now we can start studying the text of Scripture. And so let me read this first paragraph, these first seven verses. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning I want us to concentrate on the writer. I want us to concentrate our thinking on the writer 
of this book. And uh, anytime you begin the study of a book, you're laying a foundation. You're laying a foundation. And when you get to, when you're getting ready to lay the foundation to any structure, there are certain things that you have to do. And each of the steps must be done precisely. So if you've ever seen a building being built, before anything is actually built, after a site is cleared, they lay things out. Before they do anything, they lay it out. They make a plan so you can see the plan. When you get ready to pour footers for a foundation, the first thing they do is not start digging. The first thing they do is they mark exactly where the footers are supposed to go. And if they are off just a little bit on those footers and they just start building, when they get to the roof, they'll be lucky if the thing can stand. And so as we begin our study, we have to be really precise we have to know who we're talking about, what we're talking about here as we begin. And so today we're only going to get through part of verse 1 because we want to make sure we know what we're talking about because what we determine here will lead us either in the right direction or the wrong direction as we move forward in the book of Romans. So verse 1, let me read it again. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. The first thing I want you to note here is that this verse has four parts. There's four parts in this verse. First, we have the name, right? The name Paul. Secondly, we have his description. And the description is given in three parts. So here's four parts. The name, Paul. Description, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. So there's four parts to this verse, and each part is important. Also, if you look at that verse... And I did, not, I did not check any other translations for this. But I just want you to see, there's no conjunctions in here. There's no and. It doesn't say Paul, bondservant of Jesus Christ, and called to be a, an apostle, and separated to God. There's no ands in here. And what that does, by not having any of these conjunctions, that kind of draws all these things back to Paul more closely. It's, it's saying Paul, another way to say Paul is bondservant of Jesus Christ. Another way to say Paul is called to be an apostle. And a third way to say Paul is separated to the gospel of God. Paul is all of these things. All of these things are Paul. And so as we see here in the first part of this verse, following the normal Roman greeting. You know, when we, when we write a letter, what do we do? We put down, dear so-and-so. We write whoever the letter's going to. In the Roman world, 
the writer puts his name first, Paul. Then at the end, he puts, at the end of the greeting, he puts who it's going to. And so we have Paul here. And Paul's not just identifying himself. Paul is giving his credentials. Paul's saying, this is who I am. And this is why you should listen to what or read what I write. So here's Paul. Let's look at his name here. His name, Paul. What does Paul mean? Where does it come from? Where does it come from, the name Paul? Well, in Greek, Paul is Paulos. So you just write Paul, and at the end of Paul, you put O-S. O-S. And if you do that, you just wrote a little bit of Greek. Okay? That word is derived from the Latin Paulus. Paul with a U-S on the end of it. So write that, and now you can tell people, I can write Latin. All right? So now you, know, now you know two foreign languages, Greek and Latin here. You can read it and you can write uh, both of it. But that's where it comes from and it means Paul's name, the diver, diver, what's the word I'm looking? Derivation. There we go. How it comes from Latin to Greek. And both of those terms mean small, small. So here's Paul. This is his name. It was a common name. Uh, this is not some unique name. This is a name like Joe or John or something like that. It's very common. You know, five out of 20 people in Tarsus Elementary School were named Paul. You know, it's a very common name in the ancient world. And it's an important name because this is the identity of this person who is writing to the church at Rome, a church where he had never been before. So they don't know Paul by face. They can't recognize him by his look. And so they need to know who this Paul is. Now, the name Paul first appears in our Bibles in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 7. Let's turn back there. Acts chapter 13, verse 7. And just think about us doing this as we're laying out the footers. We're pounding in our batting boards and we're getting our string line out, and we're laying out our footers so we can dig them out and pour some concrete. Okay, it's not, this isn't a glorious thing. You know, it is not a glorious thing to go out to a job site and be the guy pounding in wood stakes into the ground and running with a little piece of string. You know, that's not the same thing as running a bulldozer, but it's necessary. And it's probably more important than the guy running the bulldozer. So that's what we're doing. We're doing this necessary preparation work. So Acts chapter 13, what verse did I say? Verse 7, verse 7. Who was with the proconsul, Sergius, what's the next word? Paulus. That's the name Paul. That's the name Paul. That's the Latin 
form. So this is the first time that the name Paul is mentioned in our Bibles here, at least in our New Testament. Now, if you go to verse 9, verse 9, we see the first mention of our Paul according to that name. Verse 9, then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. Verse 7, Paulus, and verse 9, Paul, it's the exact same name. In, in Greek, it's the exact same form. There's no difference here. But, the, but we see it's referring to two different people. One's the proconsul, and the other is the apostle Paul, the man that we're going to study. So this is, this is the first time that Paul actually uses his name or goes by the name Paul. And, and this Paul, we see in verse 9 here of Acts 13, his given name is what? Saul. Okay, Saul. Now, who else is named Saul? First king of Israel, right? First king of Israel. So Saul would be a very common Jewish name, named after the first king of Israel, a name that means to ask, to ask. That's what the name Saul means, to ask. It's probably connected to the fact that the Jews asked for a king like all the other nations and they got the man named to ask, Saul. So our Paul here in Romans chapter 1, his Jewish name is Saul. And he is named after the first king of Israel. Now let's consider Let's consider the background and history of this Paul. Do you know anything about this guy? We just sort of take it for granted that we're talking about Paul. Oh, yeah, Paul, he's an apostle. What else do you know about Paul? Now, everybody here ought to know a good bit about Paul because it wasn't that long ago when we studied the book of Acts. And we covered a lot of Paul's life. So we know something about Paul. Well, I think there's two ways we can quickly look at Paul. The statements he makes about himself, that's going to be our main focus, and then the historical statements about Paul. So let's look at his autobiographical statements. So turn back to Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22, verses 3 through 5. Acts 22 Verse 3. So Paul is speaking to the Jews in Jerusalem here. He says in verse 3, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, excuse me, and was zealous towards God as you are all to, uh, you all are today. Verse 4, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prison both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren. And I went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there 
to Jerusalem to be punished. So that's Paul's autobiographical description. Turn over a couple more pages to chapter 26, verse 4. Chapter 26, verse 4. This is Paul speaking to Agrippa, King Agrippa, verse 4. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Now, one more passage we can look at here, and that's Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. And I, obviously, Paul's writing to the Philippian believers. Verse 4. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So here's these three passages that give us Paul's own words that describe himself. So what can we glean from these? What can we deduce from these three passages? I think I give you a list there, don't I? In your notes, hopefully. First, we see that Paul's a Jew. Paul is a Jew. All three of these passages support that. We also find that Paul was born in Tarsus. Tarsus of Cilicia. Tarsus is not located in Israel. Tarsus is located outside of Israel. Tarsus is located in what's called the Diaspora. The Jews that lived outside of the land. Diaspora means those who were scattered. So he, he was born outside of the land of Israel as a Jew. Uh, Tarsus was a very important city in the ancient world. It was known for its education. It was in the top three cities for education. The other two being Athens and Alexandria. Tarsus was important um, both for its education and the fact that it was a, we, we would call it a free city, which means they have had autonomy over themselves, and you could be a citizen of Tarsus. They also had many Roman citizens that lived there. When Paul says in the book of Acts, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. He's saying there, I'm a citizen of Tarsus, which is a city that is not ordinary. It is not an ordinary city. It's an extraordinary city. They didn't pay land tax to Rome, which is very strange. They could tax their people and they could... Uh, have control over their own 
judicial system in Tarsus. They can even make their own money. You know, they can, they, somebody had a Xerox machine out back and they were cranking out Tarsus dollars. Of course, they didn't have paper money back then. They had coins. Paul's from Tarsus. We also find that he was raised as a Jew. He wasn't just born a Jew. He was raised as a Jew. He was circumcised on the eighth day. His family came from the tribe of Benjamin, just like his namesake. King Saul was from Benjamin. The apostle Paul slash Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. He spent his youth in Jerusalem. Even though he was born in Tarsus, he wasn't very old before he came to Jerusalem. And he spent his youth in Jerusalem. He was trained by the great teacher Gamaliel, one of the most famous rabbis of the first century. He was trained in the law of his fathers. That'd be the Old Testament. He was well known in Jerusalem. He was known among all the priests, all the rabbis, all the scribes. Everybody who was anybody in Jerusalem knew Paul. He was also a Pharisee. A Pharisee. He says of the strictest of the sects. He was a Pharisee. In other words, he was very scrupulous in following the law of Moses, but not just that, he also followed the traditions of the fathers. And we also find, according to his own testimony, Paul is zealous for the law. He's zealous for the law, even persecuting Christians. So we glean all these things from these verses. This is who Paul is. This is the Paul who is writing to the Romans. The second way we can learn about who Paul is is the historical statements. Acts chapter 9, we read that passage this morning, and then chapter 13 through 28. So if you want to know more about Paul's life, read Acts chapter 13 through 28. We're not going to do that this morning. So Paul, this man with the name Paul, he's the writer of this book, and he's none other than Paul from the book of Acts. He's the man who, who wrote much of the New Testament, a man who provides much of the doctrine for the church today. He was a Pharisee who became a follower of Jesus Christ through an extraordinary event on the road to Damascus. And he faithfully served and obeyed the Lord through evangelism, teaching, church planning, and eventually even martyred. Paul was an extraordinary guy, don't you think? It's a special guy. Now, that's just his name. That's all connected to his name. Now, I told you in verse 1 here in Romans chapter 1, there's four parts. We looked at part 1. Let's go to part 2, and that's his position. Part 2 is his position a bondservant of Jesus Christ. So his position, Paul's position, is that he is a servant. He is a slave of Jesus Christ. Now there's two things that this phrase tells us. 
This phrase tells us Paul's relationship to Jesus Christ and Paul's place in that relationship. So it, just, it doesn't just tell us that Paul has a relationship. It tells us what role he plays in that relationship. So Paul is a servant. Now, what is a servant? What is a servant? Um, the New King James and I think the New American Standard say bond servant. I think they might be the only ones that, that do that. That's not a good translation because there's no such word in Hebrew or Greek as bond servant. That comes from Exodus chapter 21. But that's not a, it's not a word. It's an idea. A servant is a slave. The Greek word here is doulos. It's the same Greek word behind servant or slave. And so when Paul says a bond servant or a servant of Jesus Christ, he's actually saying, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. And everybody would have known what a slave is. A slave is property. A slave is a person's property. A slave is someone who is owned by another. And that might sound repugnant to us today, thinking that one person could own another person. But can I tell you, for most of human history, it was common. Actually, it's still it's much more common today than what we might think insulated in Western culture. It's much more common. Um, it's, it's not unheard of in the United States either. Today. Today. They just call it, they don't call it slavery. They call it other, other things. But slavery is when a person owns another person. The life of a slave revolves around the needs and wants of someone else. They revolve, it revolves around the needs and wants of a master. Let me try to illustrate this a little bit by doing a quick comparison. And I'm going to compare slavery with marriage. <laughs> okay? And uh, speaking as someone who just had an anniversary yesterday, right? Which I thought was today. <laughs> Till yesterday, I found out it wasn't today. It was yesterday. But uh, <laughs> let me make this comparison between marriage and slavery. Marriage, two spouses whose lives revolve around one another, right? I mean, that is part of marriage. Your, your lives go together. They revolve around one another. But marriage is a mutually giving, taking relationship. In marriage, each spouse gives and each spouse takes. So it's mutual in that respect. In a slave relationship, there is no mutual giving and taking. The slave is the giver and the master is the taker. And that never changes. So this relationship that a slave has with its master revolves around the wants, the desires, the needs of the master and totally excludes anything that the slave might want. The slave is property. 
is property. They're not just a person, they're a thing. They are property. We also want to note that a slave could be a slave voluntarily. They could voluntarily be a slave. Uh, Most of the time we think of slavery as something that is forced upon people, but in the Bible there's other ways to be a slave. In most cultures, most ancient cultures, um, a way a person could, could help pay something off is to become a slave. So you get behind in your tent mortgage, you get behind on your donkey payment, you can't come up with the money. But if you don't get the money, you're going to go to jail. What can you do? You can sell yourself into slavery for a specified period of time. Your master will give you the money that you would earn. You can go out and you can pay off your tent or your donkey. Okay? Now you got to go be a slave for two years, three years, whatever it is, a specified period of time. So that could be done. But by and large, in the ancient world, most slaves were either born into slavery or they were made slaves. If you were a master and one of your slaves had a child, that child becomes your property. So slavery could be voluntary, but for the most part, People just were slaves either by birth or they were made slaves. Being a slave was not a privileged position. It was not a high position to be a slave. This isn't to say that there aren't some advantages that slaves would have, but they weren't highly thought of. As a rule, being a slave puts you at the bottom of the societal ladder. Being a slave was a position that many people tried to get out of. They tried to buy their freedom and buy their status. Paul says he is a slave. He is a servant. And his master is Jesus Christ. His master is Jesus Christ. It's a bit of truism, proverb, but every slave, every servant has to have a master. Paul's master is Jesus. He's a slave of Jesus Christ. I find it interesting that Paul doesn't say Lord Jesus Christ here. Have you ever thought about that? If you look at it, it just says a servant or a slave of Jesus Christ. Why wouldn't he say Lord Jesus Christ? He says that a lot. Why wouldn't he say Lord Jesus Christ? What does the word Lord mean? Master, master. So to say I'm a servant of Jesus Christ is the same thing to say Lord Jesus Christ. My master is Jesus Christ. I'm a servant, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. So here's the role that we see Paul's going to have in this relationship. He is the slave, Jesus is the master. When you are the slave of someone in the ancient world, in the Roman world, the master had to take care of his slaves. They had to house them. They had to feed them. They would even educate them. And in general, they had to take care of them because slaves were property, yes. They were property, but they were valuable property. 
So masters were responsible for taking care of their slaves. In fact, we know from the Roman world that there were masters who got in trouble because they didn't take care of their slaves. They didn't properly take care of their slaves and they got in trouble. Masters had to take care of their slaves. Paul, when he says, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ, is also saying, He is depending upon Jesus Christ to take care of him. He's the one who will care. He is, Jesus is his master. Now, quickly, I'm just going to go through a couple more points here. Being a servant is not unique to Paul. Being a servant of Jesus Christ is not unique to Paul. It's also a part of Christian identity. We can't get away from the passages that speak of Christians as servants or they are to serve the Lord, they are to serve God. So part of the Christian identity is to be a servant of Jesus Christ, is to be a slave of Jesus Christ, to be a slave of God. And what are the implications of being a slave? What's an implication? I got eight implications. Eight things that come out of being a slave of Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus Christ is master. He's our master. And this is his, this is his natural position. This is his natural position. We don't make him master. We don't make him Lord. He is Lord. Okay? Second implication here is simply recognizing Jesus as Lord does not save you. You realize that? Just recognizing Jesus as Lord doesn't save you. Philippians 2.11 says, in one day, everyone will recognize Jesus as Lord. Everyone, believer and unbeliever alike, are going to recognize that Jesus is Lord. So recognizing Jesus as Lord is not what saves you. Salvation is by grace through faith. Number three, being a slave, being a servant of Jesus Christ is a voluntary thing. No one is ever forced, tricked, or coerced into being a servant of the Lord. It's voluntary. Number four, being a slave means that you are not the focus of your own life. Being a slave means you are not the focus of your own life. Number five, being a slave means you don't get to do what you want to do or what even is in your best interest. Now, sometimes what's best for us isn't actually the thing we want to do, but we do it. If you're a slave, that's not a decision you get to make. You don't get to do what you want. And you don't even get to do what you think is best for you. Number six, being a slave means that you have to do whatever your master wants. You have to do whatever the master wants. Number seven, being a slave means your identity is wrapped up in who your master is. Not who you are, who your master is. And number eight, being a slave that means... Each day, you must bring yourself under the rule of Jesus Christ, your Lord. 
You have to daily submit to Jesus Christ. So this is what it means to be a slave, to be a servant of Jesus Christ. And as we are studying Paul, and we learned a little bit about Paul this morning, and we learned his good points, and we learned some negative things about Paul. God used Paul. If God used Paul, this is a little bit cliche, I know, but if God used Paul, he can use anyone. If God used Paul, who, if he wasn't a murderer, committed conspiracy to commit murder. God used him. If he can use him, he can use anyone. Here's two requirements to be used by God. You've got to be saved. First, you have to have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And secondly, you have to be willing. That's it. That's the requirements. Be saved. Be willing. And to be willing to be used means we have to submit. Really, that is what slavery is. Slavery for the Christian is really submit and everything in us fights against submitting we don't want to submit our natural inclination is for ourself i mean when you get up in the morning do you have any trouble thinking about yourself no none of us has any trouble think worrying about ourself i mean even if it is I'm going to get a cup of coffee. You know, the, the long version of that is, I am going to get a cup of coffee for myself. Or, maybe, I'm going to get a cup of coffee for myself and my husband or wife, or somebody else. But you're always going to get a cup of coffee. You're always going to get a cup of coffee. When you, you get up in the morning, there's no problem thinking about ourselves. Our natural inclination is to think about Ourself. We do not have a problem with self, our self-image. We don't have a problem with that. We have a selfishness problem. That's what we have. And because of that, we do not want to submit. We also don't want to submit because we don't want to pay attention to our leader. How many times do we just ignore our leader? How many times do we just ignore our master? I don't, you know, he, he had this written, but I don't need to pay attention to that. He said, no sexual immorality. I don't need to pay attention to that. He says, no lying, no stealing. I don't need to pay attention to any of that. I'm not going to follow him that way. I'll follow him to heaven but I don't want to follow him in what he says. We don't want to follow our leader. This is, this is, we see this in kids all the time, right? Y'all remember the game Simon Says. Okay? We're not going to play it here this morning, although I think it would be interesting if we did. We're not going to play it. Simon Says is not a complicated game. You do what Simon says. Right? 
And how do you know what Simon says in that game? The person says, Simon says. That's all you got to know. That's all you have to listen for is Simon says. But everybody gets out in that game except for one person. <laughs> we don't pay attention to our leader. And when, when we have a leader and we have to submit, it's not something we can do one time. You can't just say, well, when I was 14 years old, I went to Bible camp and I picked up a stick and I threw it in the fire and said, Lord, I submit to you. I mean, that's fine and good that you, you would do that, but you got to submit every day, maybe multiple times a day. You have to say, Lord, I'm going to follow you. I'll do what you say. So when we think about Paul being a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ, the question we have to ask ourselves, will I be a slave of Jesus Christ? Will I follow my master? Will I submit to him? Why don't you stand with me and we'll close in a word of prayer.